Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the SpaceX2 pre-launch news conference. We're here live at Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Everything is on track for the launch of the Falcon 9 rocket with its Dragon capsule tomorrow morning at 10.10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And we're here today to uh, talk about the preparations for the mission and the mission itself. We're happy to be joined today by Mr. Mike Seferdini, the NASA International Space Station Program Manager and by Gwen Shotwell, the president of SpaceX, and Joel Tumbiolo, launch weather officer from the 45th Weather Squadron at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station here in Florida. And we'll start off with opening comments. Mr. Safferdine. Well, good afternoon. It's always good to be in Florida because it means we're, uh, we're about to launch another vehicle to the International Space Station, so uh, we're, we're happy to be here. Quite a bit of work has been done to, to get to this point. Uh, both by the SpaceX team and uh, by the uh, ISS uh, team on the ground and the crew on orbit. Um, we've we've uh, spent quite a bit of time over the last few weeks uh, reconfiguring the station to be ready for, uh, for the uh, berthing of the Dragon spacecraft. We did a major software uh, upgrade on board, uh, which probably followed along because you heard about a comm loss, which was a which uh, was the result of uh, a momentary uh, hiccup in our process of upgrading our, our software, um, but was really never a, a big concern. It's just whenever you you can't communicate with the crew, of course, we become a, a little concerned and want to get back to that configuration as soon as we can. But we've overcome that. Over a million lines of code were up, upgraded, and uh, including the software for the arm that's going to uh, capture the Dragon. Uh, so the, uh, that's been done. The RWS system itself is up and uh, configured. It's been checked out. The arm is in position in its grapple position uh, for uh, when Dragon approaches, so that's ready to go. And the, uh, and the systems to communicate with the Dragon have been uh, checked out and, uh, and are activated and uh, just waiting for berthing. So on board, we're ready to go uh, for the launch of, of the Dragon and are looking forward to it. Uh, this crew, as you know, that's uh, going to do the work of capturing some of this crew will depart uh, halfway through the uh, birth stage of the Dragon, and so that'll be unique for us. It's the first time we've done that. Um, it's not a particularly challenging event other than the analysis you have to do when you have uh, another spacecraft attached to the station and, uh, and you have a Soyuz depart, but that's perfectly within our uh, experience base. But it'll be... Uh, uh, unique that we uh, bring Dragon up with six crew and depart with three. In addition, on this flight, uh, which we have uh, talked about in the previous science briefing, uh, we have uh, research that's going to come up on Dragon. We're going to do the research on board the station. It's going to take us about 22 days to do this materials research, and then we're going to put it back in the Dragon and return it home. So this becomes a driver for how long uh, we remained attached uh, with the Dragon spacecraft uh, for this particular mission. So what that shows you is this unique vehicle has is, is become a very integral part of uh, how we operate and utilize the International Space Station, and, uh, and so we're looking forward to this one uh, uh, coming up here soon. So with that, I'll hand it over to Gwen, and she can tell you all about Dragon's readiness. Thanks, Mike. So I can't uh, tell you how excited I am to be back here in Florida, because as Mike said, that means we're launching. We're a launch company. We love to launch. Uh, very excited to be uh, ready and prepared to fly the second operational mission to the International Space Station. It is the third, with the first being a demo flight. Um, I wanted to give you a little bit more detail than currently in your press uh, kit on the timeline. 
Uh, we have begun late load operations. They started at uh, 24 hours prior to liftoff, uh, and we continue to do so until uh, the last late load of cargo into Dragon uh, is at L minus eight hours, launch minus eight hours. Uh, we plan to lift off tomorrow morning at 1010 local uh, and uh, have a three minute first stage flight. Three minutes and 52 seconds into the flight, you should hopefully see on the web, nose cone jettison occur. Um, and uh, then uh, the second stage, uh, that we should have stage, excuse me, three minutes after liftoff, we'll have first stage uh, uh, flight, uh, ignite the second stage, three minutes and 52 seconds into uh, the flight, dragon nose cone will jettison, nine minutes and 11 seconds after liftoff, we will have second stage engine cutoff. Uh, nine minutes and 46 seconds after liftoff, we should see dragon separate. About 11 minutes and 45 seconds into the, uh, into the flight, uh, Dragon Solar Array should deploy, uh, which is really the, uh, the, the kickoff of the uh, on-orbit mission. About two and a half hours into that, uh, into the flight, uh, we'll start doing the first burn of Dragon as well as opening the GNC bay door, which allows the grapple fixture uh, to be exposed and uh, demonstrates a critical readiness uh, piece for us to approach and then uh, berth with the International Space Station. We'll continue to do a series of burns for the next 18 hours, um, and this mission is a little bit unique in that the phasing between Dragon uh, and the ISS is such that we get there in less than 24 hours. So this is a very quick launch to berth mission for us, and we're quite excited about that. Um, Two days after liftoff, the astronauts should open the Dragon hatch and begin unloading the cargo, executing the science, uh, reloading the Dragon capsule for a return home on the 25th of March. Um, orbital insertion targeted 200 by 325 kilometers. Uh, in case we have an engine anomaly this time, we can drop off Dragon in as low as 200 by 200, uh, so that should be nominal as well. Um, and we're carrying up. By the way, you might see difference in numbers between uh, NASA uh, and other sources on the cargo. We carry cargo for NASA plus all their support equipment and their packing, so that's why there'd be difference in the numbers that you see. Uh, but we are carrying up about 2,700 pounds of stuff for NASA. Uh, the pressurized cargo plus its packing is 677 kilos or 1,493 pounds. The unpressurized cargo, we're carrying up grapple bars for the first time. Uh, they go up in the trunk, which is that, uh, it looks like an inner stage that sits below Dragon. Um, this, the grapple bars, is, it's an interesting, uh, not only is it a first uh, flight of external uh, unpressurized cargo, um, SpaceX actually contributed to the cargo pack itself. Uh, the grapple bars are provided to us by uh, NASA, uh, built by one of their contractors. Uh, we built the support equipment to attach it into the SpaceX trunk. In addition, there's two grapple bars. You hear bars, so there's two of them. And SpaceX uh, developed uh, and tested the fixture, the structure that keeps those two together. So we'll have hardware on station in addition to Dragon after we uh, remove the, the grapple bars. Um, that's probably all I have to say as far as mission overview at this time. Uh, and then I look forward to your questions. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, Gwen. Joel? Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, 
Right now, we are looking at uh, very favorable conditions uh, tomorrow morning for, uh, for the liftoff. There are a couple minor issues that we're going to be tracking, uh, but right now they do appear to be very minor issues. If I could get the satellite picture up on the monitor just to kind of illustrate what we're going to be watching. We had a frontal boundary move through um, central Florida a couple days ago. You can see that line of clouds over extreme south Florida. That's where that frontal boundary is right now, and you can see uh, the large area of clouds associated with it. Uh, the other thing we're going to be tracking right now, it's up in the northern plains of the U.S. It's an upper-level piece of energy that's going to be dropping south and southeast over the Gulf of Mexico over the next uh, 24 hours. And when this system does uh, move over the Gulf of Mexico, it could uh, bring in a little bit of cloud cover. We're not anticipating any rain or anything of that nature. Uh, we there will be a little bit of cloud cover associated with this feature, and we're going to be tracking this cloud cover to see if it would violate any of our natural and trigger lightning uh, constraints. Now, get a little more specific, if this cloud cover, right now we're looking at uh, one of our rules named the thick cloud rule. And quickly, that cloud rule uh, states that if clouds that are overhead, it's a flight through rule, if these clouds are uh, 4,500 feet thick or greater, and any portion of those clouds are between where the freezing level is in the atmosphere and where the minus 20 degrees Celsius level is in the atmosphere, uh, that would be a violation of our uh, thick cloud rule. Now, what we're forecasting tomorrow for the freezing level is around 10,000 feet, and the 20, minus 20 degrees Celsius level will be around 25,000 feet. So what we're going to be looking for, number one, is there going to be clouds over the flight path, and number two, uh, will these clouds, any portion of these clouds, be between the 10,000 feet or freezing level and that minus 20 degrees Celsius level, which is going to be around 25,000 feet tomorrow? If portion of those clouds are between those two levels and that cloud is 4,500 feet thick, that would be a violation. Now, again, it's a very, very minor concern, but that would be the only cloud-related uh, issue that we'll, we'll be monitoring. But again, right now, we're only, if I can go to the forecast charts uh, for the launch, Basically, we're going to be looking at uh, two cloud decks. The first one is a scattered deck at 4,000 feet, and it's that second deck, uh, uh, the BKN, is a broken layer of clouds that bases around 14,000 feet. Now, it would be that layer of clouds that if it's over the pad, greater than 4,500 feet thick, and between those two levels I mentioned earlier, that would be a violation. But again, it's very, very minor concern. We're going to have good visibility tomorrow. It's going to be breezy. The winds will be out of the northwest over the next few days, and it will be breezy into the low to mid-teens tomorrow morning, possibly up to 20 knots, but well below the uh, liftoff constraint of 30 knots. So although it will be breezy, we're not anticipating the liftoff winds to be uh, an extreme concern. Uh, right now, I'm not expecting any weather, per se, as far as rain or thunderstorms, so we're good there. And the temperature at liftoff, it will be cooler Florida standards over the next few days. It's only going to be 60 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> Hate to say that for folks up in the north right now, but it's only going to be 60 degrees uh, tomorrow morning uh, at the uh, beginning of the launch window. And there's only a 20% chance of a violation or 80% chance of good weather for to, uh, tomorrow's liftoff. With a thick cloud rule and the liftoff winds, the only two areas of minor concern. If we were to go into the 24-hour delay, it's virtually the same forecast. Still going to be looking at northwest winds. We still may have that cloud cover that I mentioned earlier over, over the state, and it would be the same thick cloud rule and liftoff winds. That would be the minor concerns, and still only a 20% chance of, 
20% chance of a violation on a 24-hour delay if that were to be needed. But again, overall, weather looks good. Just a couple minor issues that we'll be tracking. Thank you. All right, Joel, thank you. And we're ready to uh, open it up for questions. In addition to our members of the news media, we're happy today to be joined by members of the NASA Social who are uh, in the room here at Kennedy and ready to ask questions. So we'll take as many questions as we can, uh, time permitting, and please make sure to wait for the microphone, state your name, your affiliation, and to whom you're addressing your question. And we'll start with Marcia Dunn. Marcia Dunn, Associated Press. Um, for Ms. Shotwell, I'm just wondering, looking ahead, when's the next... Dragon launch to the space station, and for Mike, um, could you update on the schedule for orbital sciences and what they're hoping to achieve in the next few months? CRS-3 is planned for late fall this year. It will be the first uh, CRS mission that flies on the upgraded Falcon 9. And uh, see, our orbital friends had their uh, test firing, um, a hot fire test. Um, successfully completed on Friday, and so they're headed towards an early April uh, test flight, uh, which puts a demo flight uh, potentially in, in the early uh, summer time frame. So that's what we're planning for. Irene? Irene Thoughts with Reuters. Um, for Gwen, um, are there any secondary payloads on board, Celestis, Orbcom? No, I don't believe there are no, there's certainly no Orbcom, and I don't believe there's any Celestis. No. This is all of the engine uh, issue with the CRS-1 flight? The, uh, well, what, what was determined to be the cause? Sure. There was a material flaw that went undetected in the, uh, uh, in the jacket of the Merlin engine, uh, resulting in a breach uh, into the flight, um, causing depressurization of the combustion chamber. Uh, then the flight computer recognized that depressurization, and then the command is shut down. Uh, the vehicle uh, went uh, and continued along its trajectory and did drop Dragon off in an orbit that allowed uh, Dragon to get to the space station actually 30 minutes earlier than planned. Um, so, uh, so it uh, was an extremely successful mission. I want to point out that uh, this vehicle has been designed to, to accommodate an engine out, and uh, though you never necessarily want to see it happen, it's nice that we've demonstrated uh, the vehicle as it was designed. What was the material? What was the material? You know, I've got a very detailed report that's getting reviewed by State Department right now. Um, as soon as that report has been reviewed and approved, then I can give more details. This is probably the kind of the toughest thing to talk about uh, when it comes to uh, ITAR, engine failures, anomalies, and investigations. So I want to be a little bit conservative about it. You mean like the material of the engine or like a, a for, like FOD? I mean, it's a little unclear what you're talking about. In, in the jacket of the engine. Todd? Uh, Todd Halverson of Florida today. Um, even though it might be difficult, I wonder if you could uh, tell us what steps you've taken to prevent a recurrence of the uh, engine out that you had. And I'm also curious about how many launch attempts with the Falcon 9, you can make in a row. In the old shuttle world, you know, they'd usually try twice and then stand down a day. I'm just wondering, can you do three, four, five in a row? I'll take the second question first. I'm not aware of any uh, issue that would cause us, from a vehicle perspective, to have to uh, come back down and, uh, and roll back into the hangar. Um, now, there would be NASA cargo that we would have to deal with if we were to uh, delay. 
substantially. Um, as far as what we did to clear the engines for this particular flight, uh, we did extensive analysis, obviously, to understand the problem, uh, extensive um, assessment and testing on these particular engines. Uh, the field of science that we're talking about is called NDE, non-destructive evaluation. Uh, it's as much an art as a science, um, and we certainly are getting much better at it uh, as, we, uh, as, as we mature here. But I'm going to make a shameless call for any uh, extraordinary NDE experts that want to come and change the state of science or the state of the art. Uh, we're hiring you at SpaceX. <laughs> Jason? Yeah. Uh, Jason Ryan with americaspace.com. When you uh, gave the uh, total for about, uh, I'm going to look back at a PDF that I got here from uh, that was issued from SpaceX. Uh, 20,000 kilograms, I believe, is the amount that you are required to launch the International Space Station per CRS contract. And given the numbers, uh, I had to do a little quick math there, and forgive me if I'm a bit off, but the total I've come up with is around 14,000. Uh, can we expect a... Uh, dramatic uptick in, or at least an uptick in the amount that you're lifting per these flights, or they remain fairly consistent? Uh, kilograms to pound conversion being what it is, I'm hoping my numbers aren't too far off. Thank yeah, you. I think your numbers are off, but I hate to do math in public, so we can chat offline. Um, but uh, the, 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 cargo, the cargo requirement is 20 metric tons uh, carriage up and back. Uh, we will far exceed that with the 12 missions that we have. Uh, the upgraded Falcon 9 launch vehicle will accommodate a dramatic increase in cargo as well. Uh, so you will see an increased amount of cargo, both due to probably NASA comfort with our maturity uh, in getting to space station. In addition, uh, the upgraded Falcon 9 allows additional carriage of cargo. You upgraded uh, Falcon 9. When can we expect to see the first launch of that from, from here, I guess? From the Cape. The first flight of that vehicle will be from Vandenberg. We'll be carrying the Cassiopeia for Canada, uh, and that launch should occur uh, the first half of this year, probably late first half of this year, late June. Then we have two additional commercial missions uh, to fly uh, right away. They will be here from the Cape, uh, both SES uh, as well as TICOM. We'll, so we'll fly two GTO flights uh, right after Cassiope, and then um, uh, potentially an Orbcom flight or CRS-3. Robert. Uh, Robert Perlman with CollectSpace.com. Um, what drove the flight day two rendezvous and, and grapple, uh, the accelerated schedule? Was there some particular need? And uh, excuse the levity, but last time you flew ice cream, anything uh, sweet on board for the crew? Was that direct? I'm assuming you directed that at me. Uh, it's, I think it's purely orbital geometry. Uh, we just end up launching at a time when the space station is closer. Is that accurate That's without going to orbital mechanics Anya um, and then there is a crew package um, it's a little bit healthier I think than the one that NASA sent last time um, it came from one of our employees father's orchards okay Robertson with NASA Social representing Pinehead TV. Uh, my question is about the solar arrays. Um, in the situation that they don't deploy, how do um, what happens with the mission? Does it get truncated? And then also, what happens should they not function once they're deployed? How does that affect the battery redundancy on board Dragon? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I will follow up. Uh, we do have very uh, pretty extensive capacity batteries on Dragon. I just don't. I'm pr we might be able to make one attempt uh, at berthing with the ISS. 
um, just on the batteries alone. I don't know that from a system perspective we would consider doing that. But let me let me follow up on that. That's a good question. Bill? Uh, Bill Harwood with CBS. I'll ask an engine question to Mike. Um, that was a pretty dramatic uh, event during CRS-1. I mean, I've never seen in 25 years that much hardware come off a rocket and you still get to orbit. Um, that's reality, and it's a compliment to you, Gwen, I guess, because the thing did get to orbit, as you say. That was remarkable. But, what, Mike, what, do you, what did you have to see to make you confident that they have, in fact, done what they need to do to make sure something like that doesn't happen again or something worse? Uh, that's a good question, Bill. Um, you know, it's sort of uh, a unique uh, relationship that we have in the past, and, and I've been asked this in public more than once. In the past, because of the uh, build of the vehicles and the, the um, taxpayers' dollars used to build it, we typically have been very open about everything that we have done and looked at and found uh, within the boundaries of the law as they, uh, as they exist today. And so um, with this new relationship, we have two things. We still have the same laws we have about export control and worrying about the ITAR. Uh, but also we have proprietary information that, that uh, you don't want to get out into the open. But the relationship we have with SpaceX is such that uh, we, we see anything that they see. And we sat next to them and worked with them and provided some, uh, some uh, assistance, uh, a little bit of expertise. Uh, they borrowed some of our NDE guys, as, as was shown, so we could stare at, uh, at interesting, uh, uh, I'll call them pictures, for... Uh, uh, to keep it as, as bland as possible, but um, quite a bit of work was done to try to analyze the cause of the anomaly. We participated in all of that. Um, it, we, uh, there, extensive work was done on the history of the engines and the testing done to the engines prior to flight, uh, what they were exposed to, how they were, how they were inspected before they were assembled, uh, how they're assembled. Uh, all of this work we went through with them. Um, and so the conclusions they came to, uh, we agree with. The work they did to ensure that this vehicle is about to fly, uh, we agree with. And, uh, and our role, of course, as NASA is to sit next to them and, and, uh, and work with them and understand the anomaly so that we're comfortable. We have, we have two options as the customer. We can either put our hardware on that vehicle or not. And uh, when we were done, we, uh, we felt like the risk we were accepting with this flight was the same as we'd accepted with the previous flights. And uh, we put all the hardware we had we needed to fly on that vehicle, so we we didn't have any restrictions on the hardware that we put on this on this vehicle for this flight. I'd like to clarify, Bill. The uh, the pieces that you saw uh, in the plume were the fairing, basically secondary structure. I just didn't want anyone to think that uh, that the engine flew off because that was there out in the blogs as well. Yep. Dan. Hi, Dan Billow with West TV for Gwen Shotwell. Um, <clears throat> what would be the effect of a sequester on uh, SpaceX's milestones for this year? You have a lot of stuff going on at the launch pads out there and on the, the goal stated in your press kit to launch astronauts by 2015. Uh, the sequester won't impact uh, any of SpaceX's commercial business that we have this year. Um, Mike will have to comment on sequestration and its possible impact on CRS-3. Um, as well, I'd need someone from the commercial crew office to talk about any impact uh, that they would have on the milestones that we plan to execute. It's not up to me. It's up to my customer. Uh, from a sequestration standpoint, our, our initial looks from an ISS program perspective, we won't uh, get an impact that will cause us to uh, change our plans in any way as we know it today. 
Ken. Hi, Ken Kramer for Space Flight Magazine. Um, two questions for, for Gwen. One is a follow-up, actually. I have a similar concern to Jason about, about the weight that you're carrying up. Um, are you maxed out on the weight of this version of the uh, Falcon 9, and is it the maximum weight? The other question I'm wondering is about there were some other anomalies on, on the uh, last flight related to the glacier freezer, freezer and the, um, some of the computers that were made, may not have been radiation-hardened sufficiently, one of them knocked out. So um, what have you done to address this, please? So the issue that we saw with Glacier was there was some water intrusion uh, uh, in, the, um, uh, in the service section of the Dragon capsule uh, after we landed. Uh, we have since put um, good measures in place. This vehicle was largely built uh, after, after that vehicle, after CRS-2 or CRS-1 landed. So we put, we retrofitted this vehicle uh, to the extent we possibly could. We think we've eliminated the issue. The next Dragon that we fly will have even more robust methods to keep water basically out of the, of the, that particular element of the service section. So basically water got into the service section, um, and I don't know exactly whether it shorted out some of the power to Glacier or not, um, but the power was uh, out on Glacier until uh, uh, the recovery crew got Dragon back on board, so it was two, between two hours, two and three hours? It was almost four. Oh, almost four hours. Thanks for the correction. Um, as far as the uh, uh, flight, the Dragon computer anomaly, um, I don't want to say that it wasn't radiation hardened enough. The system worked exactly. It was designed to. Uh, we, are, we have designed an electronics architecture that's radiation tolerant. Uh, so we accept faults. Uh, the systems recover uh, and we continue to fly. We did make, so there's three flight computers on Dragon. Uh, this particular item, uh, this particular fault uh, took the, the, that particular computer out of sync with the other two. We they were all three operational. We decided for many reasons, many, I don't necessarily want to go into them here, we decided to not resync up that third computer with the other two, so we flew home on the two computers. The system is designed to fly on one, uh, two represents some good redundancy. Um, we would have to have resync that computer if we, had, if we took another fault, so we have to leave station with two. Okay. You know, I don't know if we're maxed out um, up or not. Um, we're probably close on this particular flight to be max mass. That's what I understand. Yeah. Daryl. Let's see, but before you go on, I'm sorry. The glacier comment, let, I want to talk about that a little bit because there's enough discussion out in the airwaves that I, I ought to um, discuss it a bit. You know, glaciers are very important to us. This is our way to get our, our samples home. Um, after the demo mission, uh, when they first uh, had this water intrusion problem in the in the service section, and by the way, this is not the pressurized volume um, of the capsule. This is a lower portion of the capsule that's open to the environment. Um, the SpaceX folks came to us and asked, talked to us about the anomaly, talked to us about the likelihood that the uh, the power would fail to the glacier before the uh, capsule was retrieved. Uh, we talked about worst case, best case scenarios, and uh, and based on that information, we chose which samples to put in the glacier. Uh, we filled the glacier up coming home, and the samples were fine, even with the with the loss of power and and the and the the loss of power time. I don't remember the exact time was within the window that we had analyzed. Uh, for this for this flight, uh, the SpaceX uh, team. Uh, went to great lengths to go in and make mods to these uh, particular boxes and the cables that lead into them to try to seal them up. 
Um, and we, as, as uh, Gwen said, we have a, a modification of those boxes, a permanent modification of those boxes coming on the next, on the next dragon. But on this dragon, in an attempt to give us a little more uh, time, they went off and, uh, and made a mod to the boxes. They actually tested in a water chamber. Uh, so we feel like our time to failure, if it occurs, is uh, shorter. And, and using that information, we went back to the researchers to decide which samples to bring home this time. Uh, and in no case did any researcher want to not come home uh, in this glacier. So again, we'll fly the glacier home with the research we need to bring home. Uh, so this has not constrained us in any way, and that was what I've been hearing a little bit about in the airway, so I just wanted to make it clear. Daryl. Daryl Dale Fox, Orlando. Um, Charlie Bolden uh, wrote Congress and told him that uh, one of the milestones that couldn't be funded was the SpaceX in-flight abort test review. What is that test, and, and would that not push out a return uh, to uh, American astronauts into space? And in the question for NASA, does the sequester, uh, does, is it weighted towards commercial crew in terms of the cuts? You want to answer first? I'll go first. So if sequestration occurs, and if NASA has to decrease the commercial crew budget, there will likely be an impact to our milestones. My comment before was not to say that there isn't. It's just that I don't know exactly what will occur. Uh, I don't know that sequestration will occur, although I have a pretty good guess. Um, and uh, if it does occur, I don't know what steps NASA is going to take. I don't know what programs they're going to look at. Uh, and I don't know how they're going to restructure their funding. So. Uh, there has been some discussion about specific milestones uh, out in the airwaves, as Mike would say, but I've also heard other discussions as well. So I'd just really rather not comment. I'm happy to discuss it as soon as we know what, what the funding will actually look like. And I have enough time, hard enough time keeping up with stations, so I'm not, I'm not aware of uh, the splits. I know what the impact is to the to ISS, and as I said, it's uh, we won't have an issue doing the program that we planned, given what we've been told uh, so far. Philip Sloss with nasaspaceflight.com. Uh, a couple of uh, grapple fixture questions. Uh, first, for Ms. Shotwell, um, do you have a breakdown of the, the mass going up for the grapple fixtures and the flight support equipment on that? I do. So the grapple bars are 273 kilos. I don't know if that mass includes the bundling equipment as well. Uh, the fixed support equipment is 100 kilos. That's the, that basically stays with the Dragon. For, for Mr. Safradini, um, I, I believe that these are going to be placed on the uh, mobile base system on APOA mm -hmm. um, and then moved during an EVA uh, later in the year. Do you know where on the trusses those are going to go? Oh, wow. That is amazing. First, it's amazing that you're interested enough to ask the question. <laughs> uh, I, I'm racking my brain, and I can't remember where they're going to go. I, I, wish I, could, I wish I could tell you, but we'll follow up with you and let you know. That's an excellent question. Certainly one I ought to know. So. Hi. Um, I have a two-part question. So first, to Mike, what does it mean to provide this kind of service to the ISS? And uh, to Gwen, what does it mean uh, for you as a company uh, to provide a service like this to the United States? Um, and how does it feel to be sending up cargo for the second time? Uh, let's see. Um, 
if you've if you've been listening to uh, what we've been trying to communicate to the outside world, the International Space Station is a um, fundamentally a research platform uh, that is com unique and extremely capable. Uh, and with it, uh, I expect that the individuals over the years will find things that were discovered or done on board space station that will affect their very lives in a, in a profound way. That's my belief. Um, and uh, without, without the SpaceX vehicle and, and the other commercial vehicle, we, the simple answer is we won't be able to do that. We, with what we have in terms of, of, um, of the partner vehicles, we could keep the station in orbit and the crews healthy. Uh, but to get the kind of robust up and down that we require uh, to do beneficial research uh, that will make a difference to us all and, and make it worth the expense we paid to build this thing uh, in the first place, we have to have these kind of vehicles. So uh, that's why at the beginning today I, I, uh, I said this is an integral part of the research we do on board ISS. You, you need the ISS, you need the platform, but you need the system that will allow you uh, to bring stuff up, bring stuff down, and it's got to be in a in a way that you can can uh, deal with it when you get home. So, not only do we have a pressurized system coming home, we have a pressurized system that allows us to have uh, refrigeration, which is very important to our samples that uh, uh, that we fix on orbit uh, in that fashion. In addition to that, in the near future, you'll hear us start talking about flying uh, rodents again, flying mice again. Um, this is very important to uh, osteoporosis type research and other types of research and uh, and that'll push the limits of what SpaceX can do and what we can do but but uh, that's why we have I'm not I will never forget the moment when we found out uh, that we were awarded the cots agreement uh, in uh, in August 2006 timeframe. I remember exactly the, the statement that Elon make, and I will refrain because we're on TV and children can watch. But it was freaking awesome, I can tell you that. Um, and I, I can't, it hasn't gotten any less exciting um, since that moment. So we are so proud that NASA selected us. Um, I'm so proud of the team that was able to make this capability um, in the time frame and the budgets that we had allotted and have two great missions under our belt um, and a third one uh, to come tomorrow. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. SpaceX is really a special place. I know we have some questions in the back of the room and we'll get a microphone to you as soon as we can, but let's take a question from Jason. This one is uh, for, for Mike, and I'm kind of glad that Gwen talked about her impressions on COTS. Uh, you know, for those of us that follow the space program, launch vehicles usually within their first few launches, 75% of them experience a, a failure, a dramatic failure. SpaceX has beaten that in, in triplicate uh-oh, am I jinxing you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to get you, and not only that, but more importantly, the question goes to uh, the last mission, as, as Irene pointed out, that they had, they had an anomaly, and they turned it around fairly quickly, and here they are launching again. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, what's your impression of what SpaceX is doing out here and how they've managed so far? You're saying, since I came from NASA, we couldn't possibly do it that fast. Is that what you're doing? <laughs> Um, well, what your worry is, it's, it's all about uh, what your driving force is and, and how you balance your risk, right? 
Um, and so these guys are a commercial company, and it doesn't do them any good. They don't make any money sitting on the ground. So their job is to get back to flying. But if their customer is not comfortable, and I don't mean just NASA, anybody wants to fly on them, uh, that it's not a reliable system, it doesn't do them any good either. So um, that's the backdrop that we got started. It really was a, a um, it was a conversation. It's been a it's been a to a group effort to go through this. We have been arm-in-arm uh, arm, uh, with with our SpaceX friends, and I can tell you there is nothing that we would have done uh, that they chose not to do when it comes to what, what you believe is absolutely mandatory to, to try to sort through this anomaly So, uh, and then recover from it. Uh, are there more conservative things one could choose to do? Uh, yes. Would NASA have done them? I don't think so. Um, I think these guys did everything that that you should do for the spacecraft that you're flying and the job you're trying to do with it. So um, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say if this is a completely NASA vehicle, we'd be flying again. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, the, the NASA experts in all the different areas uh, that, uh, that had to participate to really understand the, the anomaly that they dealt with and the physics around it uh, were... Um, in lockstep with what, what was decided to do along the way, the analysis was done, the testing that was done, and ultimately the NDE was done to confirm that the vehicle about to fly is in, in good shape. And so, um, you know, it's all about your priorities and, and pushing the team and making sure they have the resources they need to get the job done as quick as they can. And, uh, and I think that's what our SpaceX friends have done. Irene Klotz with uh, Reuters, uh, again for Gwen. Um, could you just give us an update on where things stand with the uh, Vandenberg operations and also the um, um, any, any progress on selecting a third launch site? So we're making tremendous progress at Vandenberg. Uh, the site could potentially be ready here in the next month or so um, to, to fly a vehicle. Um, so we made great progress. It was a great, uh, great team effort. Um, we had a lot of great support. The Vandenberg team itself is quite small. Uh, Air Force was extraordinary to work with. We, re we built that site really very quickly. Um, so as far as a commercial site goes, we'll, we're continuing to make progress at numerous locations. Um, we still haven't done a final selection. There's still hurdles to, to get through in almost every location. Um, so we're going to continue to work multiple paths till we, till we click on one. Okay. Um, question is for Gwen. Um, about the Falcon 9 upgrades, is that the Merlin 1D that's on there? And then any other upgrades on that? And then the other question is, um, has there been a difference in the way, since so much attention was brought to CRS-1 with the engines, is there a difference in how you guys have tested or number of times that you guys have tested between that launch and this launch? Um, let me get your last question first. Uh, I, I don't think there's been any change in the, the actual engine firing testing that we're doing on, on these engines. Um, we have... Uh, gone through and added a lot of additional uh, NDE. I'm sorry, I hate using acronyms, the non-destructive evaluation guys. Uh, we, we've done a lot. Uh, we're doing a lot more there now. Uh, the Merlin-1D is not susceptible to the issue that we did see on the CRS-1 flight, however. Um, so the, the upgraded Falcon 9 does have a substantial upgrade on the engines. The 1D is uh, even more of a screamer than the 1C was. Uh, 100 and about 150,000 pounds of thrust uh, at sea level versus all under 100,000 pounds of thrust for the 1C. Um, and uh, given that extra thrust, you have to extend the tanks, right? You have to leverage, put more propellant through. Uh, so the tanks are extended. Um, 
th those are the major the major upgrades. So it was a performance enhancement as well as this vehicle is uh, more easily manufactured. Marcia. Um, Marcia Dunn, Associated Press. Um, for Ms. Shotwell, you mentioned 2,700 pounds of stuff. Um, was that going up because the, the SpaceX press kit and all the other handouts seem to indicate half that weight? So I'm just trying to clarify, give or take, how much cargo is going up aboard the Dragon. And for Mike, is any of it one of a kind or urgently needed equipment, uh, anything like that on board? So let me run through the numbers, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> In public, I've got 677 kilos of pressurized cargo and the packaging. That's the pressurized stuff. The unpressurized, the grapple bars and all its support equipment is 373 kilos. So if I did math correctly, 1,050 kilos. Up. Down is 1,370 kilos. For a total of around 2,400 kilos, if you multiplied by 12, you would have more than the 20 metric tons <laughs> required under CRS. And that's as far as I'm going with math in public. Is there anything special or um, unique? Let's see. The one thing that comes to mind other than all the research, about half of that is half of the pressurized is research hardware. Um, so... Um, of the pressurized, um, we are flying uh, Dash 4 beds. These are the first Dash 4 beds we'll fly for the carbon dioxide removal system, uh, which is uh, pretty significant. Uh, the, the carbon dioxide removal system is uh, infamous, as it was the only system that didn't activate uh, properly when we activated the lab, and it has continued to provide us challenges along the way, and we've sorted out one of the big challenges had to do with the uh, the dust that's created inside these beds uh, over time, and the Dash 4 gives us an opportunity to uh, eliminate that uh, that concern, and also gives us a, an ability to clean out the so you eliminate the concerns by creating um, screens or or filters, and then of course those get plugged up. So these beds are unique in that one of the capabilities they have is the ability to clean the the filters if you have to. So these beds are very important to us. Also, during the docked, we're going to take advantage of SpaceX during the docked period. We're going to, we're going to change out these two beds uh, into one of the two uh, carbon dioxide removal systems uh, that are on the on ISS and then remove, they return those two beds home. We're doing that so we can turn those Dash 3 beds into Dash 4s and fly them later. So uh, those are unique. Of course, the grapple bars are, are unique. They're one of a kind as well. Uh, so those are the ones that come to mind off the top of my head. Hi, uh, Nat Welch from uh, the social media group. Uh, I was wondering, when if you could comment on uh, future plans for the Falcon 9 rocket after either uh, your contract with NASA is up. Um, is it just for fairing uh, Dragon missions or uh, um, beyond satellites and things like that? There's no question that Falcon 9 is designed to carry both Dragon as well as uh, satellites into orbit. Uh, the next flight after this one will be a satellite delivery to orbit flight uh, for Cassiope. And then, as I said earlier, we'll do two GTO missions, one for SES and then one for TICOM. Sorry, I, um, I meant like a after you finish both the, the Dragon and the s satellite missions, uh, possibly either is it powerful enough to carry humans or any other uh, types of cargo beyond, I guess, your current contracts? The uh, Falcon 9 is the, the launch vehicle that will carry our crew Dragon to station and other destinations, yes. 
Okay, over here. Hi there, uh, Cameron Corey, social media. Um, as Gwen had said, this is the last flight of the uh, the Falcon 1.0 flying the Merlin 1C engines. Um, they are in a grid fashion at the moment. Okay, now with the Falcon 1.1, they're going to a circular pattern with one in the middle. Is there any sort of benefits using one over the other? I'm sure there's a benefit, or we wouldn't have upgraded it to be this way. Um, I don't know. I don't know the specifics. However, uh, it just makes some engineering sense that uh, to punch the load from the engines into the skin, it's better to be along the the, the circumference of the skin. Um, so there's only one engine that isn't close closely uh, directed at the at the skin, which basically carries the load for the launcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hi, Ken Kramer for Universe today for Gwen. Uh, two questions. Uh, go back to Vandenberg for a minute. Can you tell us about uh, the status progress of the Falcon 9 Heavy? What would be the first payload? And uh, do you envision any any uh, involvement with this proposed Dennis Tito mission to Mars? Thanks. Okay, so Vandenberg uh, is being built to accommodate the Falcon 9 single core as well as the Falcon Heavy um, all at the same time. I don't want to say that there aren't things to do at Vandenberg after we fly this first single core Falcon 9 there. There's probably some additional work to do uh, to accommodate the heavy. I don't know the specific details of it, but it was designed from the beginning to accommodate both vehicles. Um, uh, the heavy flight, I'm not talking yet about the payload, uh, what we're going to plan to do there, but that vehicle should be built uh, late this year and we'll lift off as quickly as we can uh, from Vandenberg with the heavy. And then as far as the, the Dennis Tito flight, uh, I think his uh, plan is very ambitious. Um, we um, have been rumored to be in partnership with him, which we're not, um, but we are a launch service provider, and uh, if he can... Uh, if he can come up with the funding uh, to execute this mission, I'd be happy to have him as a customer. <laughs> For Ms. Shotwell, this is Jim Howard from uh, Social Media. Uh, just quick questions about the Dragon capsule. Are they reusable or ever going to be reused? And do you have any customers for it other than NASA? We have, uh, by the way, the Dragon capsule is absolutely uh, reusable. It was de designed to be reusable. Um, we have turned Dragon on after she's come home, and she does operate exactly as planned. Um, so, so we know we can reuse it. We, we will find customers for those Dragon capsules, um, uh, potentially even uh, have NASA consider uh, leveraging refurbished capsules. But uh, um, we do have a lot of interest in the refurbished capsules, actually. Dave Dick Dickinson with astroguys.com. NORAD in uh, satellite trackers generally track four payloads with, the, uh, with each launch. I wondered what else besides the booster and Dragon people are seeing. Solar panel covers or the fairings or... Oh, I see. Okay. So you're asking what are the components of yeah. Falcon 9 and Dragon? Yeah, um, NORAD will catalog usually four objects that are up there, and, and I've had questions before. What are those other two objects? Are they... Are it's they it's probably the, the fairing, the solar array fairings. Okay. On Dragon. All right. We'll take our last question from Irene. Um, I hope this isn't a NASA antisocial question, but in light of the... Um, the engine issues, uh, your company was pretty sensitive about it, and I was wondering if there was any business implications, uh, any customers 
that were kind of on the hook that decided to wait and see a few more flights. And, um, and then just in general, um, uh, this is just the beginning of a very large manifest for SpaceX, a lot of different kinds of customers. Um, how important, aside from the mission of delivering to a station, um, how, do you, how do you all look at this as far as the overall company's future? How do I look at the NASA this, missions? This, this, well, each each flight that comes, you know, got you got two down. Next one, next one, and and I guess I'm asking just because there was kind of a uh, a media backlash a bit from SpaceX for those of us when we were reporting on the engine issue. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't understand the the backlash piece. Uh, uh, the, the company was sensitive about it. Well. I think the majority of our sensitivity is due to this whole State Department uh, regime that failures and certainly how you get over failures and how you describe the process to get through that is an extremely protected um, pieces of information. I mean, that's really what that's what prompted the current ITAR laws was uh, a commercial satellite company in China helping them just by asking questions how to get through a launch failure. So we're just ultra-sensitive about that. I don't look good in horizontal stripes. Uh, I certainly don't want to go to jail. I'd like to see my kids go to college and graduate. So um, we're, just, we're just really careful about that. Probably too careful, and we'll find that out when we get this report that we sent to State Department to say, what, can we say this stuff in public? Um, did that get the second part of your question? Yeah, I guess, I guess just as far as Oh, from yeah, that, and good. just as a, a how one of these missions sort of sets the stage for everything else that's coming down the road for SpaceX. So uh, we lost no customers. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have to tell you that I think the industry and the public was uh, dramatically impressed uh, by the fact that uh, we had an engine issue, um, engine shutdown, and still made mission. Um, so it's it's an impressive thing. Uh, again, you know, you don't want it to happen, but uh, the fact that the vehicle di did exactly what it was supposed to do was impressive. We've heard from the insurance community. Uh, they were impressed. Um, uh, our other customers have been very impressed as well. So, no, no one's canceled. Uh, the, I don't believe there was a contract that we had kind of in limbo that didn't get signed in that time frame. Um, just as a factoid, every commercial launch that was competed last year uh, in the Falcon 9 class, SpaceX won. Woohoo! <laughs> and with that, I think we'll wrap it up. Thank you, Gwen. <laughs> Everything remains on track for the launch tomorrow morning at 10, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time of the Falcon 9 and Dragon capsule. Uh, you can follow activities on social media. Uh, on Twitter using at NASA and at SpaceX and the hashtags ISS and Dragon. And we'll begin our live launch coverage tomorrow at 8.30 a.m. right here on NASA television and www.nasa.gov ntv. Thank you very much.